Galatians 5, 25 to 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When we think of the power of the Holy Spirit, I have a feeling certain images come to mind for you. Perhaps for those of you, especially who come from a charismatic background, you might consider the gift of prophecy or speaking in tongues, um, perhaps healing. Whole denominations are formed on the basis of this view of the power of the Holy Spirit. But believing in the power of the Holy Spirit is not relegated simply to the charismatics amongst us. Every Christian believes in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to make this point, and I think it's a point that Paul makes here in Galatians chapter 5, is that the primary exhibition of the power of the Holy Spirit is not found in tongues or healing or prophecy, but rather in, might I say, the extraordinarily ordinary aspects of the Christian life. And I hope you'll see that really one of the most powerful moves of the Spirit is manifested when we are together and when we are alone. We must never underestimate the cost that the Lord had to pay for us to have the power of this truth and this reality for us. So with that said, I'd like to first look at our power together. And we're going to look at that by looking at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And Paul, in the very beginning of that statement, makes an assumption. The assumption is that we live by the Spirit, that our life as a Christian is only possible by the power of the Spirit, by His presence. He said early in Galatians 2.20, I no longer live but Christ lives in me. That is to say that Jesus, by his blood shed for us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, indwells within every Christian. It's impossible to be a Christian without having the Spirit of God dwelling within you. And with that comes some real truths. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And for anyone who has memorized or heard that verse before, you probably have wrestled with it like I have. I don't always feel like a new creation. In fact, sometimes I feel very much like an old creation. The old doesn't seem to have gone. So can that truly be real for me? Also, in the midst of sin, is it that we are a new creation? Can the Spirit really be living in me? Or as Paul says earlier, as we saw in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. He has done this. It's not he will set us free. He has present, past and present, set us free. And he has done so by the cross, by the grace of God through Christ. How does this happen? How does this work, especially for those of us who are struggling, and I think that's all of us, with our own sinfulness? How does the power of the Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, as Paul speaks about here, transform us? How does it recreate us, renew us, revive us, 
And Paul makes it so uh, clear for us that it's not something that's just in the future. It's for the now. It's for the here and now. How does this happen? The way we want to illustrate this is, for those of us who are parents, um, you know that perhaps you have a growth wall. And what I mean by that is that you take your child and say, hey, stand against the wall. You take a pencil and you mark off their height and you write down the date of their growth. And as you will examine their growth, you will see that that marking most likely has increased. Now, if you have a child who is no longer a child but has gone through adolescence and is now a teenager, that growth spurt sometimes in one summer alone can be an inch, sometimes it can be five inches. But you're living with this person all the time, right? You see them every day. You don't see them literally stretching before your eyes. And so if you mark off in the summer of a teenage boy, let's say of 15 years old, and you mark off and they're this height, and suddenly they're this height, and you think, how did that happen? I live with this person. I see this person every day. How did they grow before my very eyes? I didn't even realize it. Now, someone who doesn't live with them, they see the growth immediately. They go, wow, you grew a lot. See, that's in very, very similarly to the power of the Holy Spirit in our growth in Christ. So often, we don't necessarily see that growth. It seems very, very small sometimes almost two steps forward, one step backwards. But for those of you who are better at math than I am, even two is greater than one. Even going backwards one, you're still moving forward one. You know, so it's, it is this reality that growth is real. It happens. And the promise of Scripture is that if you are in Christ, you are growing. You are changing. You are being renewed day by day, moment by moment. Then the question is, how do we grow? How does this growth take place? It takes place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And according to verse 25, this power is in two different ways, two distinctive ways. The first way is that Paul says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Notice that the pronoun is plural. It's us. It's not I or me. It's, it's a, a group, a community. It's the church. Paul's saying we have to together keep in step with the Spirit. Now, that's really important. But to flesh that out even more, he uses a very special word in the Greek. The word that um, is translated for us as keep in step, it's actually one word. And that one word is a military word. It's the word in the Greek for a military formation. And imagine, say, the Roman legion, and they're marching. And if you've ever seen a picture or watched a movie of the Roman legion, they're in columns, and they, they have shields and spears and swords, and they march in step, lockstep with one another. With that, they can move to and fro very quickly if the battle rages in a certain area, they, the different centurions are called out and they will run in step, so at maximum speed, both not only for offense but also for defense because the shields come together and lock in to protect against flaming arrows. 
This is the idea of what Paul is trying to portray for us as a power, as a manifestation of what it means to... And I like the way biblical commentator and now president of Wheaton College, Phil Riken, he describes the Holy Spirit in this context as the drill sergeant. The drill sergeant's job is to train people for war, soldiers for war, and they're not trying to win a popularity contest. Their goal is to help this person to survive and to defeat the enemy. And the Holy Spirit is God's drill sergeant. He keeps us in order, in line, so that we will stay in formation, so that we can survive, we can help each other, and we can win the war. Now, why do soldiers march in formation? Because when they are together, they are much more powerful than when they're alone. Again, think of the Roman soldier. Alone by himself, surrounded by the enemy, he's a dead duck. There's no way he's going to survive. Not even two soldiers or even ten. Not against a, a really fierce enemy. But soldiers that remain in formation with the army is able to do tremendous damage upon the enemy and ward off even the most horrific of blows. It's important that also, if, I mean, imagine it this way. If there was no formation and you, the army was sent out, we're an army, and we're sent out from one place to another to fight a war, fight a battle, what would happen? The, the quicker ones would get there first. And the slower ones, and there'd be medium ones and slow ones, they would lag in this whole unformed uh, conglomeration of soldiers. And when the fighting gets fierce, when you don't see people around you, the instinct is to panic, to run, to be afraid, to hide, and to think that there's no hope. And so there's full retreat, and there's loss, and the objective is lost, and all of these, just the whole process. This isn't just in an army. This is how God has made all creatures, even. The wildebeest, if you ever watch animal shows, they are hunted often by lions in a pride. And you have this pride of lions. They will try to attack a, a horde of wildebeest, but what happens? They can't defeat them. These strong, powerful lions, these predators, the king of the jungle, and still, if the wildebeest stick together, even the greatest predators of all cannot harm that herd of beasts. Only when one strays off from the herd is that one subjected and really the object of that lion's fury and dinner for that night. We don't have to just stop there. We go to a, a locust. One locust is squashed, but a whole swarm of locusts? They will destroy miles of fields. Do you know that it is the power of the Holy Spirit to keep us together? Our desire, our instinct is to separate. We saw this in Galatians 5.20 when Paul listed out the desires of the flesh. He said, idolatry, this list of desires of the flesh, idolatry, sorcery. But look at the rest of the, these desires, enmity, strife jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That list is a list of all these different ways in which people act on their own. It's 
I choose what's best for me. I don't need anyone in my life to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it my way. And if people try to uh, show me anything other than what I feel is right, uh, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. That list, the desire of the flesh is always to try to point out, I will do things my way. And whether you're a little child or an old man or woman, that heart and desire to say, I will do things my way, that's there from beginning to end. That's called the flesh. The flesh always is about saying, I know what's best for me, and no one has a right to say what is best for me in my life. The lone soldier is susceptible to ambush. And God knows that sin and Satan, what's their primary motivation? It's to separate, to separate us from God, to separate us from the gospel, to separate us from one another. He knows that if he can keep us separate from one another, he's won. We can't fight back. We're defenseless. We're powerless. And we will never see change in ourselves or in anyone else. Certainly we will not see change in the world that we live in. A single soldier is ambushed. A single locust is squashed under our feet. A single sardine is eaten. But if you've ever seen a school of sardines in the ocean, and there's just a huge swarm of sardines, a great white shark will try to get one of those sardines, and they can't because they just don't know how to fix their target, and so they, they don't end up eating any of them. One sardine, yes, it's dead meat. But together, it can ward off even the greatest of predators in the ocean or on land. So too the Holy Spirit knows that our greatest power is when we are together in Christ. And we can ward off even the wiles of the devil, the greatest of all predators in all the universe when we are together. But alone, we are defenseless. We are helpless. My friends, I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be together again. It is. And as much as it must have been comfortable sitting on your seats watching in your pajamas, rolling out of bed with messy hair, tussled, drinking your cup of coffee, and listening to worship. It's dangerous. It's deadly for your soul to be in that place. When we get into the habit of not meeting together, we become that single wildebeest or that single sardine or the single soldier who is susceptible to ambush. When we are in this place, we, we are alone. And in that aloneness is a deadliness to our soul. It is the Spirit's power to bring us together, to want to come together. We recognize we need to be together. Another thing with keeping in step with the Spirit is that we march in formation where the Spirit wants us to be in whatever order He wants us to be. That is to say that the person in the back isn't saying, why am I always in the back? How come that person is always in the front and vice versa? The Spirit, as we see in verse 26, guards us against being conceited, self-centered, having our own plans. Guards us against feeling as though we should provoke and envy one another. Looking at what someone else has, the position, the goods, the intelligence, the beauty, and saying, how come they get that and I don't get that? 
You see how all of that is meant to actually break us apart, not unify us and bring us together. So Paul warns us in verse 26, don't take that heart and consume yourself with that. And he, by his spirit, God does, empowers us to actually be other-centered, to consider, as Paul says in Philippians 2, others better than yourself. And as we're going to see in chapter 6, verse 2, we're going to bear one another's burdens together. Soldiers in formation also do not let others fall out of formation. They pull up one another when wounded. They wait for one another. They're patient in waiting for that person. They recognize that not everyone is in the same shape has journeyed enough, has enough experience. And so rather than feeling frustrated with others because they're not exactly where we think they should be, we're willing to wait it out. Now, granted, that is not easy. Actually, none of this is easy. Sometimes when we see someone falling out of formation because of weariness or boredom or laziness or even their own sinfulness or their own mistakes, we maybe sometimes have to yell at them and raise them up and be strong for them. And sometimes if that doesn't work, sometimes we have to carry them on our shoulders. Now, it is hard to carry people on your shoulders. Actually, it's impossible. You know, try physically going home and carry someone on your shoulders. Carry your husband or your wife or your children. Even a little baby, like Mark was carrying their baby on his arm, and I know what that feels like. Eventually, that baby gets to be bigger. They still want to be carrying. Some of you are carrying 10-year-olds. No, I don't know if it's 10. But you're carrying big children, and eventually, you start getting a big bicep. But even then, you're starting to feel really weak. It's tiring. Go and carry an individual, an adult, on your shoulders for a day, for an hour. So difficult. Spiritually, emotionally, it is so difficult to carry people. And some of you are thinking, I've tried that. It is, I'm going to be destroyed in that process. But the reality is that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that he sustains us to be in each other's lives. And sometimes, yes, to carry each other. And sometimes it is painful. It is hard. It is difficult. It requires patience. But know this is that the Lord gives you his grace, his strength. He reminds you that not only do you carry that person, but he's carrying you in many ways. I mean, to think of it more metaphorically this way, you're carrying someone on your shoulders, but at the same time, Jesus is carrying both of you on his. And he's carrying you and he's walking with you. And he's saying, I'm not going to let you go. This is the church. This is what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. He empowers us to actually walk alongside. And it takes a lot of patience, kindness, compassion, grace, mercy. Everything that Paul has been laying out in Galatians is what we need in order to be in this place. So here's the challenge with the Bible, is that we read a letter like Galatians or Ephesians or 1 Corinthians, and you think to yourself, if you were to read just the end, the last chapters, chapter five and six of Galatians, or four, five, and six of Ephesians, there's a lot of imperatives. Do this, don't do that. If you don't really understand chapters one and three in Ephesians, that 
he, you know, he called you before the foundations of the world. Or as we've seen in Galatians, all about the gospel of Christ, all that Jesus has done. And some of us want to say, Paul, stop talking about all that Jesus has done. Get to the point of, what do I need to do? We want to move so quickly to the, what do I need to do? But if you forget what Jesus has done, you won't be able to do it. And that's the point of this part is that we're called to carry one another, to lift one another, to bear with one another. But without the, without the earlier part of the fact that Jesus did this for us, there is no way we could sustain that. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that reminds us, Jesus bore your burdens. On that road to Calvary, he took your burdens. He took the place for you so that when you experience the same thing of people in your life who are challenging, difficult, it could be a child in your family. It could be a parent, uh, maybe an aging parent. It could be a friend, a coworker. It is so hard to bear that. But the Lord is there and he's saying, I'm with you. I'm not leaving you alone. I've never left you alone. Again, please note, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So often it is hard. Jesus makes it so clear for us in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. You will have trouble. But I've overcome the world. So this is what we are called to be. And sometimes, in, when you're marching in formation, going into battle, in battle, and someone's wounded, they will say, leave me alone. I just want to sit here. I don't want to move anymore. I don't want to, I'm just going to die here. And to be in formation takes us saying, no, I'm not going to let you die there. I'm not going to leave you alone. Even if I have to carry you, I will carry you. But you're not just sitting there. This is the church. This is God's people. We do this, though, not because within ourselves we're trying to conjure up strength. No, it is the power of the Holy Spirit that supernaturally affects us and causes us to be together in Christ. What a power. Secondly is that not only do we have power together, we have power alone. To be in formation assumes that you have the personal strength individually, you're trained, you've disciplined yourself so that you can actually march in formation. Now again, this discipline is an outflow or a fruit of what Christ has done. So when I discipline my body and make it my slave, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, it's not so that I can save myself. It's I am saved already, and as a fruit of that salvation, I want to know his word. I want to share the gospel with others. And so from that flows the desire to discipline myself. The realization that that discipline actually brings about freedom because the piano player who disciplines himself or herself to go through the scales, to play the notes, to do all these things over years and years of practice, then suddenly they can start playing Mozart freely with joy and the person who hears it says, this is beautiful. But the person who doesn't discipline themselves, they just play this 
terrible, discordant, cacophonous sound that sounds miserable. And no one wants to hear that, including the, the person who's playing it. You see, there's freedom in the discipline, but the discipline always flows out of the power to say, I want to do this because of all that Christ has done. So to the soldier who's marching in formation says, I am going to discipline myself and does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. But know this, marching is boring. It's mundane. It's ordinary. It's habitual. It's repetitive. And so many Christians think that, well, I don't think the Holy Spirit is in that. I think the Holy Spirit is in, if I speak prophetic words, or as Paul says, sometimes have speak words of tongues, prophetic words. But you can be, as he says in 1 Corinthians 13, a, a, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I've watched churches that strive for perhaps the dust of angel wings flowing out. That's true. Or, oh Lord, please give me gold teeth. And praying for gold teeth to come in your mouth. And I know you're thinking, no, that can't be. No, there are. People pray for gold teeth. Or praying for, and I've been in churches personally where you pray for roaring like a lion or giving spiritual birth. Or I've been in many different types of churches. And the, the thinking is, if the Holy Spirit is real, he will provide some sort of miraculous manifestation that will make me say, wow, God really is present. But may I add this, that what Paul is saying here is that if you really want to see the power of the Holy Spirit, if you really want to see supernatural work, it's when you're alone and you open the Bible and you are so struck by his word that you fall flat on your face and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's supernatural power. It's more powerful, may I say, than having gold teeth suddenly come into your mouth. It's that miraculous. It's a miracle. And if you don't believe me, you can listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 8, 12, 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Why do you think the Pharisees wanted a sign? They wanted a sign because they wanted to see that Jesus was for real. If you're a Messiah, you will provide the sign that we want. And Jesus says, no, you're only going to get one sign. It, it wasn't you're not going to ever get a sign. It's you will get a sign. But the sign is what? Three nights. What is he referring to there? He's obviously referring to the death and resurrection of his own life. The rising of the, from the grave to overcome the power of Satan and sin forever. And that sign is so powerful, so amazing, that it is what transforms us, not just once and forever, which it does, through justification by faith alone, but also through sanctification. That is to say that in every time you read God's word, every time we gather together with his people, 
Every time we come together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we come together and, or you just come alone and you're in your own room and you're praying and you're asking the Lord for help, there is a miraculous work happening there, whether you realize it or not. And so, so often we think, if I get whatever, fill in the blank, if I have healing in my life, if my finances are finally taken care of, if I get into the school of my choice, if I find that right husband or wife in my life, then everything will be so good. And then, Jesus, I'll know you're real. I know you're, I'll know you're good. You know why? Because that's what you want, you and I want. And our instinct is always to think, whatever I get, whatever I want, I should get. I deserve it. And so if Jesus always answered us by doing exactly what we want, that would not be a, a miracle. That's in actuality not really what will ever draw us near to God himself. Instead, the miracle comes in when you trust him no matter what. And that, my friends, is in the daily, moment-by-moment -moment faithfulness and trust that you have in his word, in prayer, amongst his people, regularly coming to him. The ordinary means of grace, and the ordinary is what is extraordinary. Too many of us have believed the lie that God will most meet us at a retreat, at a revival meeting, at some dramatic event in our life. And it's not to say that God doesn't use those means in our lives. But that's very, very out of the ordinary. And not only that, it's no more supernatural than you meeting him day by day, moment by moment, every moment of your life in the regular means of God's grace. Consider the fact that when Jesus was walking with the, the, uh, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and when Jesus opened God's word, which at that time was the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and it was at that point that he pointed, as Luke describes in Luke 23, that he showed the disciples from God's word that it was all about him. And then the disciples later on respond, didn't our hearts burn when we heard Jesus open these scriptures to us? It was just the regular understanding that Christ comes from his word, that our hearts are so stirred. It's a miraculous supernatural transformation that is happening and growth is exponential in those moments. The power of the Holy Spirit is to take God's word, the communion we have in prayer, and the communion we have together with his people, and take those moments and transform our lives. He is the one who does this. He is the one who keeps us in step, in formation. And so, therefore, we refuse to yield, and these new habits are formed and changed. And those habits our Holy Spirit, powerful habits. I love the way theologian J.I. Packer describes this, the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace, namely biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper, and with them through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change, namely, and listen to the change, thinking, 
listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others and weighing any response they make. The Spirit shows His power in us not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. Such communications come only rarely and to some believers not at all, but rather by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. I uh, had the um, opportunity when I was younger, when I was in seminary, a group of us went to Toronto. Some of you might have no idea about this, but there was something called the Toronto Blessing, and it took place in Toronto at the Toronto Vineyard. And it was at a time where so many people were looking for some extraordinary expressional work of the Spirit. And the point is not to say whether that's of God or not. Um, That's not my point here. But I do believe this, at least for myself, it was a desire to want to see something extraordinary to prove in my heart that God is who he says he is. Whether I wanted to actually say that or not, it was true. In my deepest of hearts, it was there. And the one thing that was not there is exactly what J.I. Packer here is talking about. That there's this thinking, listening, questioning of oneself, examining of oneself, admonishing of oneself, sharing the, the love of Christ with others. So often when we're so consumed with thinking, I just need that prayer answered this way, with this miraculous power, with this change, and if that happens, then God is real in my life and I will live anew. No, that's not how it works. And Jesus knows that full well. That's why he told the parable of the, poor man, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Because when the rich man was in hell and he said, Abraham, let me at least tell my brothers and sisters about this. Let me, let me go and tell them. And Abraham says, if they're not willing to listen to Moses and the prophets, then even someone rising from the dead, they will not change. May we know this to be true. May we understand that. May we live that. My friends, the Holy Spirit, he points you to Jesus every day of your life. God's word is there before you. And the fact of the matter is is that we just don't believe it. He changes us through it. We don't think it's powerful. So when we read it, we feel as though it's mundane. It's boring. I know this already. There's nothing new. Or maybe when you come to him on your knees and your prayers are so weak and feeble, the words just seem empty. And you just think, I I have nothing to say. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit moans and groans for you. He takes your feeble prayers. And through his presence, the Father hears them because of his Son. That's a miracle that God hears our prayers, isn't it? No matter how inconsistent, no matter how weak, sometimes we're not even aware of what we're saying because we're either tired or we're distracted. The Lord still, if you are in Christ, hears your prayers. That's a supernatural work. The Holy Spirit is there with you when you're struggling with sin, when you're just wrestling with anger and frustration. It's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that brings you to humility and says, oh Lord, please help me. I can't do this. Maybe if you're struggling with lust and you think there's no way I'll ever be free, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that can break the bondage of that lust. 
Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is always ongoing until you see him face to face and then you will realize you've actually empowered me all my life. Forgive me for actually minimizing that power by thinking you're not active. No, he's always active. He is transforming you, going from growth to here exponentially. You just don't see it. But today, I hope you see it. I hope you understand it. He's given everything so that you might be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Father, I thank you for the wondrous work of your Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives now and forever. This is not something that you promise simply for the future. It is here and now. Forgive us, O Lord, for the many times that we have falsely believed that the Spirit's power is only seen in certain miraculous gifts. But truly the miraculous is happening in our bedrooms, in our, in our day-to-day activities, in the errands that we run, even in this very moment. As we gather, as we open your word, as we listen, as we pray our feeble prayers, the power of the Holy Spirit is what draws us near to Christ and to remember Jesus that you paid it all so that we can call you Abba, Father. So Father, as we take this communion, may we do so, so awestruck by your goodness, your kindness to us. We worship you this day. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.